It's June the 18th. We're reading through the Bible. We've reached Nehemiah chapters 7 and 8. And we'll see in this great text that after the walls are done, the people are situated in the land, and then there's all of the genealogies to find out who is there. Uh, 42,360 people. This is a big group. Think about it. It's a, like a, a city. I mean, obviously it is an ancient city, but think about a modern city here in South Orange County. It's a lot of people now that have settled in the land. There's lots of work to be done and lots of things going on, but the genealogies were important. And remember, as we said in the end of Ezra, as we had this uh, call to separate from these foreign wives, the genealogy was so important in this text, it said the priests couldn't even serve unless they could clear prove their genealogy. It's very important in this Old Testament covenant situation where you had people having to know where they were from in terms of their ancestry. And so until the Urim and the Thummim uh, were in practice, you'll see that some of them were excluded. And that brings up some of the things we saw there in Acts chapter 2 of the casting of lots as God used the things that we don't fully understand about how it all worked, but the Urim and the Thummim to determine a yes or no answer, or maybe even something more than that. Uh, I've talked about it in the past and taught on it in the past. There's some ambiguity and a little mystery and all that, but the point is that they had to exclude until they could confirm through other means that these people were qualified to be able to serve as priests. Not only that, just to know that these people were coming from the tribes of Israel and um, this was really important. In chapter 8, we see Ezra reading the law. He gets up and reads the Bible. What a great thing that is for us to remember the importance of ingesting the Word of God. It had been lost so many generations as you saw, and then it would be revived as it was found in all of the revivals through the kings uh, before the Babylonian captivity. And uh, when they weren't reading the Bible, they didn't know what was in the Bible. There was trouble in the land. And thankfully, we have this uh, time where the Bible is the establishment of the truth among the people to where they could serve the Lord and know that they were doing the things that God had called them to do. Uh, there's a call for no one to be mourning or crying, to be celebrating. They celebrate the Beast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths here in this passage and uh, some good days here for many reasons in uh, Nehemiah chapter 7 and 8. Our New Testament reading is from Acts chapter 3 and uh, maybe remember studying that passage with me where you have this paraplegic that is healed. It becomes as um, um, a miraculous foundation for so many things that happen in chapters 3 and 4. Peter preaches here, there on the Temple Mount. They're coming in, of course. You remember the scene as this paraplegic is uh, is healed. You'll read about it here this morning and today, and you'll see how this becomes the uh, platform for preaching. And the preaching, of course, is the reason this whole sign had taken place, so that the message of repentance for the blotting out of sins could be proclaimed, which is the whole point, as we saw in Luke 24, of the commissioning of the church. And so that message goes out, and I hope it inspires you and motivates you uh, to preach repentance to those around you today. Our community imperative is found in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, where it simply says to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We think that God here is receiving this act of service on Christ's behalf, which is the ultimate act of service. He lays down his life as a propitiatory satisfaction of the sins of the world, a payment for those sins. But it's seen here, even though Christ is loving us in this act, as it says there in John, he showed us the full extent of his love by going to the cross. And yet it's love not only for us, but it ends up being a sacrifice of an offering to God, not just in the theological sense of paying for our sins, but being a 
uh, something done in display and acceptable to God. And it takes me to several things in the New Testament where I see that the love that we show for each other is really something that is a sacrifice as it's done unto God. I would put it this way. Our community imperative is to love each other as a sacrifice for God. Love each other as a sacrifice for God. Here's a passage that's a great parallel to that. Philippians chapter 2, verse 17, Paul says, Even if I'm poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, he says, I'm going to be glad and rejoice with you all. It's an act of worship to God, and yet it is an act of love for them. And the thing that should motivate us is not just the worthiness in our mind of the object of our love, the people in the body of Christ, but that we see this as something we're doing for the Lord's sake. We're doing it as an act of worship to God. So the sacrifice that I'm doing to serve people in the body of Christ ought to be, in my mind, this clear reference of thinking about this is an act of service to God. We do all of this for God's sake. So keeping both of those uh, focal points in view, I think, can be helpful for us because one we recognize can be um, less than motivating at times. Sometimes we don't get the response that we want. Sometimes we don't, you know, feel the gratification that we might want to feel. But doing this all for God, that's the eternal, unchanging, immutable focus of our lives. It's always worth sacrificing for the Lord. And so we love each other. We serve each other. We care for each other as a sacrifice unto the Lord. Mm -hmm.